All right, we're going to read two passages to begin this morning. The first is in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then the second passage is in Hebrews chapter 13. In verse 20, we'll read 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray once more. Father, we just confess that we need Your help now. We need Your help, Lord, to speak. We need Your help to hear. We need Your help to understand. And Lord, we, we don't want this to just be dead letter. We pray for life. Lord, You said that the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. So we pray this morning for the power of Your Spirit to give life here. Pray You'd help us to shake off the tiredness, shake off the weariness, shake off the cares of the world, and to rise above these things and to lay hold of the truth this morning. Feed us on Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Dick gave a message the week before on the subject of legalism, and in that message he listed five attitudes that can be evidences of legalistic thinking in a believer's life. And what I want to do this morning is expand on one of the attitudes that Dick mentioned, which was this, and this is what he said, if we generally think that God is disappointed with us rather than delighting over us as His blood-bought children, we are evidencing a legalistic way of thinking. Let me read that one more time. If we generally think that God is disappointed with us rather than delighting over us as His blood-bought children, we are evidencing a legalistic way of thinking. Now, it's very easy for a statement like that to go in one ear and out the other. Because we don't feel like, many times, that God does delight over us. And if we're honest, we often do feel like He's generally disappointed in us. And so my hope is that the message this morning will help expand on what Dick already shared in order to combat this particular falsehood in the Christian life. And my title this morning is The Pleasure of God in Our Imperfect Obedience. And I have two main goals in mind. First, I want to encourage you with the truth that our Heavenly Father really does take pleasure in the obedience of His children, as imperfect as that obedience often is. And we'll get into this more later, but look at how this truth comes out in just the two passages that we started with this morning. In Philippians 2, Paul says that God is at work in us, both to will and to do, to will and to work, for His good pleasure, you see. 
Our willing and doing, which is never perfect in this life, nevertheless brings pleasure to God. See, we tend to just kind of read right over that phrase there. He's, he works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's pleasing to Him. In the same way, the author of Hebrews prays that God would equip us to do His will, so there's obedience, to do His will by working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. It's pleasing to Him what He works in us, this obedience. So again, our doing of God's will, which is imperfect, can nevertheless be pleasing to God as He works in us to obey Him. So one of the main things I want us to see this morning is that our Heavenly Father really does take pleasure in the obedience of His children. And secondly, I want us to think this morning about how God can do that. How can He do that? How can a God who is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfect in every way, ever take pleasure in anything that's imperfect? And we'll consider four reasons why He can and does do exactly that. And so that gives you an idea of where we're headed this morning. But before we go any further, I want to take a few minutes here to just give you a sense of the motivation behind the message. Why this particular subject? Why this emphasis? And how do these truths relate to the kind of attitude that Dick talked about? Well, first of all, any believer with a somewhat tender conscience feels sharply how far short he or she falls when it comes to obeying God. After all, what is our standard when it comes to obedience? Or better, who is our standard when it comes to obedience? Our standard is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. We're called to follow in His footsteps. We're called to love as He loved. And what Christian would dare say that he has ever loved God or other people the way Jesus did? Who has ever prayed with as much fervency in reality? Who has ever cherished the Word of God the way that he did? Who has ever delighted to do God's will as he did? I mean, to even ask the questions is to answer them. The bottom line is that even the most holy Christian falls far short of the perfect standard of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it gets even worse than that. Not only do we fall far short of Christ's standard, we often fall short even of the far lower standard set by other believers around us. I mean, I don't have to search too hard to find another believer who has a better prayer life than I do, or who has a greater hunger for the Word of God than I do, or a greater burden for the lost. In fact, I don't even need to go outside of this room to find those things. You know, it's like back when I was in high school, I played a lot of basketball, and I remember seeing this t-shirt one time, and this t-shirt was supposed to motivate you to want to work harder and practice harder, but the t-shirt said, there's always somebody out there better than you. It's <laughs> and it's, tr it's true. <laughs> um, it's discouraging, but it's true. <laughs> so, so here we are. We're falling short of Christ's perfect standard. We're falling short many times, even when compared to other believers. And then the devil comes in, the adversary comes in, knocking at the door, the slanderer, the accuser. And the devil will repeat one word over and over and over again in your ears. Failure, failure, failure. A constant refrain, failure. They'll say things like, you're so pathetic, look at yourself. So-and-so has been fasting and praying for an hour every morning this week, but you can hardly get out of bed to even make it to work on time. So-and-so has been reading six chapters every day. How much have you been reading? So-and-so has been going door-to-door -to, -door to share the gospel with people. When was the last time you shared the gospel with anyone? 
failure, 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 constantly flashing before your eyes like a neon light. And over time, those accusations will just beat you into submission, beat you down. Or even worse, you'll mistake the accusing work of the enemy for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And rather than realize that the devil is the one speaking, you'll begin to think that God is. After all, that's the devil's ultimate goal, isn't it? The devil wants you to have a distorted view of what God is like. Because a distorted view of God leads to a defeated Christian life. That's what he did with Eve. He presented to Eve a distorted view of God's character, and it led to the fall of mankind. I mean, the great evil comes from having a distorted view of God's character. And that's the devil's ultimate goal when he accuses in this way. And so one motivation behind the message this morning is a desire to deliver the children of God from a sense of failure that is not spirit-produced and that if left unchecked can lead to that kind of legalistic attitude that Dick mentioned. But secondly, I desire this morning to encourage holy living, to empower greater and greater obedience in the Christian life, that we would be, like Paul says in Romans 12, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You see, I'm not here to tell you this morning that disobedience is okay or that God is content with mediocre Christian living. That's not it. My desire is that you would go away from this with a renewed zeal to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But the question is, how do you motivate a true Christian towards greater obedience? And that's something you've got to wrestle with, especially those of you that are in teaching capacities in any way, Bible studies, whatever. You've got to wrestle with this question. How do you motivate a true Christian towards greater obedience? How do you produce a zeal for holiness? Well, you can beat the sheep over the head. You can harp on how pathetic they are, how far short they're falling. You know, tell people to shape up, to get their act together. That's one way of doing it. But not only is that not biblical, it simply doesn't work, at least not in the long run. You can motivate people in the short term by shaming them and and causing them to feel guilty. But motivating real, biblical, long-term growth and holiness requires a lot stronger medicine than shame and guilt. And the strongest medicine that you can give, now listen to me here, the strongest medicine that you can give to a true believer is grace. It's the strongest medicine. Pure, undiluted, 100% full strength, free grace and acceptance in Christ. Hebrews 13.9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Picture a boy who's been getting C's and D's all year long in math class, and his dad is none too pleased about it. And so he decides to really study hard for his next test, and he manages to pull a B plus. And he is so excited, he runs home and he hands that test to his dad, and his dad takes one look at it, he crumples it up, and he growls at him, why couldn't you get an A? That's what we think God is like a lot of times. That's exactly the picture we have a lot of times of what God is like. Here's another boy. He's been getting C's and D's all year, but his dad knows he can do better, and he tries to encourage him as much as he can, helps him with his assignments and so on. So this boy decides to really study hard for his next test, and he manages to get a B+. And he is so excited, he runs home and he hands the test to his dad. And his dad says, oh, son, I'm so proud of you. This is great. 
I can't wait to see you do even better on your next test. Now, which of those sons do you think is going to be motivated to improve? Which of those sons is going to have a greater desire to succeed? It's obvious, isn't it? Rather than be motivated, the first son is probably going to throw in the towel. The attitude is going to be, well, my dad's not pleased no matter how hard I try, so what's the point in trying at all? That's what the law does to a person. Law says perform or else. And when you don't measure up, the law crushes you under the weight of your own failure. But the second son, you see, he experienced grace. He experienced grace. Did he get the A? Was he perfect? No. You see, it was grace. The response was a gracious response. But grace, you see, will light a fire in a person's heart to want to do better, to want to obey, to want to be pleasing to the Father because He's so good, because He's so gracious. So my second motivation in giving the message is to encourage and empower greater obedience in your life by giving you a glimpse of just how gracious God really is. To encourage you with the truth that your Heavenly Father is the kind of God who really does delight in the obedience of His children, as pathetic and imperfect as it often is. Because it's as we exult in His love and acceptance that we'll find our hearts empowered to greater obedience in the pathway of holiness. All right, I've said several times here that God takes pleasure in our obedience. Now, where am I getting that from? Well, first of all, we have several passages that speak of God's pleasure in His people in more or less of a general kind of sense. And I want to start by just looking at a few of those. The first one is in Psalm 149. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at a few passages that talk about God taking pleasure in His people in just a general sense. And then we're going to look at passages that talk about God taking pleasure in specific kinds of obedience that His people do or perform. So first of all, Psalm 149, God taking pleasure in His people in a general sort of sense. Psalm 149.1 Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in His Maker, let the sons of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing, let them sing praises to Him with timbrel and lyre. For... The Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. So again, a general statement. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. And notice the context here. The people are called upon to rejoice and to shout and to dance and to make music. And the basis for that is because God takes pleasure in them. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. Next passage, Isaiah 62 And I know a lot of these are familiar to you, but I'm hoping that if we put them in the context of the subject matter of the sermon this morning, that they might give a little bit different feel. Isaiah 62, if I can find Isaiah. It's pretty bad when you can't find Isaiah. It's a big book. Isaiah 62, verse 4. And we really should read more than this, but I just want to kind of cut to the chase here. Isaiah 62.4, it's a prophecy concerning the new covenant. 
It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called my delight is in her. He's talking to the people here. That's the name of the people. My delight is in you. My delight is in her. And your land will be called married, for the Lord delights in you. And to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Again, another general statement of God's delight and pleasure in his people. Another passage, Jeremiah 32. We'll look at two more of these general kind of verses. Jeremiah 32. In verse 38, talking about gathering his people out of the nations, restoring the captivity of his people. Verse 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. So here's God saying that He's going to do something with all of His heart and with all of His soul. And the something that He's going to do is in reference to His people. It's an amazing, amazing passage. And then the most amazing one, Zephaniah 3. Zephaniah is a tiny little book. It's in between Habakkuk and Haggai. And if that doesn't help, just start at the book of Matthew and turn backwards until you find it. (laughs) Some of these minor prophets are hard to find. Zephaniah 3, starting in verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. There's justification. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior, literally a warrior who saves. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And I think the King James says there, doesn't it rejoice over you with singing or something along those lines? There's a book called The Singing God, written by Sam Storms, and this is one of the verses that he majors on in that verse. But again, just this idea that God rejoices over His people with shouts of joy. I mean, you can't... What can you say? But the point here, several general passages that speak about God's pleasure and delight in His people. 
And then moving on from that, we also have passages that specifically talk about God's pleasure in the obedience of his people in different ways, different acts of obedience. There's a lot here. I'm just going to read these to you and give you the verse references because I don't want to take the time to look these up because I think it'll take too long. Uh, but first of all, 1 Samuel 15:22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. So the Lord doesn't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. What does He delight in? He delights in obeying the voice of the Lord. So obedience, our obedience, is a, a delight to Him. Proverbs 11.20 The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are His delight. So in their walk, talking about walk of obedience, living the Christian life, are his delight. And then some specific acts of obedience here that God takes pleasure and delights in. First of all, dealing faithfully, Proverbs 12:22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. How about prayer? Proverbs 15:8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. He delights in that. When we gather for prayer meeting, that's something that God delights in. It's not something he just He's neutral about. He delights in that. Giving. Philippians 4.18, the area of giving. But I have received everything in full. This is Paul speaking. I've received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So Paul's telling these Philippians, you know, thank you for the gift that you sent. That gift that you sent was well-pleasing to God. It's something that he delights in. When you give something to someone, when you give a gift to help someone out, it's well-pleasing to the Lord. Being obedient to your parents. Colossians 3.20 Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. What about believing God? Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please Him. Now, what's the, what's the opposite of that? With faith, it's possible to please Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, but with faith, it is possible to please God. He delights when you believe Him. Doing good and sharing, Hebrews thirteen sixteen. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And then kind of a summary statement here, 1 John 3, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, this is 21 and 22, 1 John 3, 21 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we, whatever we receive from Him, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him, excuse me, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. You see, it's just a general statement about Christians. Christians are people that do His commandments, and they, they're the people that do the things that are pleasing in His sight. It's not talking about some super class of Christians here. It's just a statement about a true believer. We do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. To be pleasing to Him. Do you have that kind of mindset? You see, you've got to first believe 
that you can please Him before you're going to make it your ambition to please Him. We need to have our minds renewed even on that first point. And we could add others here to this list, but hopefully this is enough to get the point across and to show us that that our obedience really does please God. It really does. You see, that's not just me saying that. The Bible says that over and over again. It talks about God taking pleasure in His people in a general sense, and it talks about specific things that the Christian does that please God and that are well-pleasing in His sight. He really does take pleasure in it. Is our obedience perfect? Not in the ultimate sense of being perfectly Christ-like, but it is nevertheless pleasing to God. It's His delight, imperfect as it often is. And there's a reason, beloved, why the Spirit-produced works in the believer's life are called fruit. They're called fruit. They're not called rubbish. They're fruit. Why? Because fruit is pleasing. It's something that's it's delicious. It's desirable. It's sweet to the taste. And especially in this culture, back when the New Testament was written, you're, I mean, you didn't go out to... I don't know, wherever, and get some big piece of dessert or something. I mean, fruit, like a piece of fruit was your dessert. That was what you ate for your dessert. And so you didn't have a big piece of chocolate or something for dessert. You had a piece of fruit. I mean, this was, you know, you're working, you're eating this meal and you're working towards that dessert. And it's, oh, they bring it out and it's a juicy pear or something. I mean, it's desirable. We kind of lose that in our culture because it's so common. And we don't really think of it as being that big of a deal. But back then, that was the, that was the big deal. That was the dessert of your meal. That was the high point of the meal, was getting to eat that fruit. Pleasing, desirable, sweet to the taste. Another way to say it, our obedience is good works. It's the term the Bible uses. They are good works, well-pleasing to the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see, sometimes we can overreact to this idea that we're not justified based on our works, and we can almost go too far with that, and we can give people the impression that even after we've become Christians, we still don't do anything good. And it's not true. That's not the way the Bible talks. Because when you become a Christian, you're a new creation. You're a different person, and you really do produce good things. You produce good fruit, good works, and so on. All right, I said at the beginning that one thing I wanted us to think about here is how can God do this? How can a God who is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfect in every way, ever take pleasure in anything that is imperfect? And it is a problem, isn't it, when you start to think about it? And I really had to think about this to try to figure out how this could be because I believed it because the Bible taught it, but how can he do it? How can a God who's perfectly holy take pleasure in anything that's imperfect, including our obedience? And I want us to think about four reasons this morning why he can do that. Four reasons. The first reason is because our imperfect acts of obedience are made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. Second reason why God can do this is because our acts of obedience are real and genuine Good deeds of obedience. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. The third reason why is because God is the one who works obedience in and through us. That's the third reason. And then fourthly, the fourth reason why God can do this is because our imperfect obedience 
flows from a heart of love, and love is the fulfillment of the law. So we'll take each of these in turn. The first reason why God is able to take pleasure in our obedience is because our imperfect acts of obedience are sanctified and made acceptable to God through our perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, one of the things that a priest did in the Old Testament there under the Old Covenant, one of the things a priest did was offer gifts to God on behalf of men. So if you wanted to bring a gift to God, you didn't give it to him yourself directly, but you would give the gift to the priest, and the priest would then offer the gift to God on your behalf. And in this way, the gift of a sinful human being could be made acceptable to a perfectly holy God. In the same way, our imperfect acts of obedience are never offered to God without first going through our great high priest who sanctifies them and makes them acceptable to God. And so you read things like this in the New Testament. Romans 1.8, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. You see, even your thanksgivings to God have to be sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Colossians 3.17, Paul says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You go through Him. He's the high priest. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so when we come here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening, what's happening is, is we're offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. The church is being built together in order to offer up sacrifices to God, but those sacrifices are only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then, again, in Hebrews thirteen fifteen, he says, Through Him, then, and in the context, he's talking about the Lord Jesus, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And so... This is so encouraging. I mean, if this were not the case, nothing that we ever did could be pleasing to God because even our best works, even our best works, tend to be mixed in with a little bit of dross. I mean, think about you, you set your alarm to get up in the morning because you know you, you should get up in the morning and pray. You want to get up in the morning to pray. You set your alarm. The alarm goes off, and you hit the snooze button. And the alarm goes off again, and you hit the snooze button. And three or four times it goes off again, so you've already 30, 40 minutes are gone. You finally wake up. You're able to pray for maybe five or ten minutes because you've wasted so much time hitting the snooze button. But you did eventually pray, you see. Now, it would have been a lot better if you had just gotten up when it went off the first time and had that much more time to pray. But, you see, in our mind, we start to think, well, then that time that I did pray was worthless. I blew it, you know, because I messed up at the beginning. I, I didn't get up on time. I blew it. So the time that I did spend in prayer was basically worthless. God's not pleased with that. You see, it's not true. It's not true. It's mixed in with some dross. I mean, there's some bad stuff in there. It would be better if you had just gotten up right away and did it, but you still did do it. And you, you did it out of a desire to please God and a desire to want to draw near to Him. And you, you could say the same thing for reading Scripture, uh, for hosp doing hospitality. 
all of these different things. There's mixed motives a lot of times. You know, I know I should have this person over for dinner, but it's, you know, it's been a busy week. I don't want to go through the extra hassle of preparing something, but you do it anyway. Now, it would have been a lot better if you had never had those thoughts, never had those, you know, those, those things that are kind of, they're just drops. They're there, but you still went ahead and did the obedience anyway, and it's still pleasing to the Lord. The part that the part that you did do is good. It's a good work because it comes from a desire to please Him. So it's made acceptable to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to take those imperfect acts of obedience and make them acceptable to God. Not just acceptable, but to make them something that God actually takes pleasure and delights in. So even our best deeds are mixed with, with imperfections in this life. Uh, but nevertheless, they're made acceptable to God through the Lord. The second reason why God is able to take pleasure in our imperfect obedience is because our works are real and genuine acts of obedience. They're not hypocritical. They're not merely for show. And this is, of course, the exact opposite of what we see in the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, if you want to talk about people who did works, I mean, just did works, look at the scribes and Pharisees. Those guys would pray all day long in the synagogues and on the street corners. All day long they'd be out there on the street corners. But they would do it solely to be seen by men. I mean, can you imagine you're driving along Baltimore and there on the corner is this guy with his arms up and he's praying. And you go down to the next corner and there's another guy. I mean, that's what it was like with the scribes and Pharisees. They're out there on the street corners all day long praying. But it was all a show. They would give faithfully to the poor. They would. But whenever they did, they would sound a trumpet, Jesus said, so that everyone would know that they were doing it. You know, look here, get your camera out, look what I'm doing, drawing attention to themselves. Watch me give to this needy person. They would memorize Scripture like crazy. I mean, I'm willing to bet that if we took all of the Christians in this room and we added together all of the Scripture that we've memorized, it still wouldn't come up to the amount of Scripture that one single scribe or Pharisee had memorized. A lot of those guys had memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. A lot of them had memorized even more than that. I mean, it's crazy. Memorize Scripture. They would even tie bits of Scripture around their arms and their foreheads. But it was all a show to make other people revere them. It was worthless, every last bit of it. Jesus said they were like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. All of their righteous deeds were nothing more than filthy rags. In the same way, the so-called good works of the lost religious man are like a piece of fool's gold. It looks really good and it looks really valuable on the outside. I mean, right now, I looked it up yesterday, gold is over $1,500 an ounce. I mean, it's just crazy. You have an ounce of gold, $1,500. So you find this, you know, this piece of fool's gold. It might be a pretty big rock, and you think, man, I'm, I made it. You know, Thousands upon thousands of dollars right here in my hand. But all it takes is a little tapping and scraping, and you've exposed that rock for what it really is. I mean, it's not even worth being a paperweight anymore. It's worthless. On the other hand, the works of the true Christian are like a genuine piece of gold. Now that piece of gold might have some other worthless rock clinging to it, might have some other little bits of quartz or whatever around it, but nevertheless, it's the real genuine thing. It's real gold. It's real. 
So the Christian prays and reads and gives, not to be seen by men, but because he loves God. Does he love God perfectly in these things? No, but he really does love God. And he really does love other people. His obedience is the genuine article, though it might be mixed with imperfections. I like the way John Newton said it in that hymn. He said, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore. Oh, for grace to love thee more. He doesn't go on and say, well, I guess I don't love you at all. No, it's weak and faint, but I do really love you, Lord. Oh, for grace to love you more. All right, a third reason why God can take pleasure in our imperfect works is because He is the one who ultimately produces them. Any imperfections in our obedience is a result of our fallen flesh. But the fact that there's anything good at all in our obedience is a result of God's work in and through us. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're His workmanship. His workmanship. You see, it's one thing to go out and buy a piece of artwork to hang on your wall, but it's another thing altogether to make something yourself to hang on the wall. You can delight in your own work in a way that you can't, something that's just store-bought, because you made it. It's your workmanship. It's the work of your hands. It brings a special delight to your heart. In the same way, beloved, the Bible says that you are God's workmanship. You are created to bring delight and pleasure to Him. And so He's at work in you and through you to produce these fruits of obedience that are pleasing to Him. And we saw this already. I'll just read these again here that we started with. In Philippians 2, listen to Paul again. Paul says, God is, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. So He's working in you, and He's working these things in you that actually bring pleasure to Himself. You're His workmanship to bring pleasure to Him. And then again in, in Hebrews 13, it says, Equip you, may the Lord Jesus Christ equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So He's working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. He's the one producing it. He's the one working it in us. It's His workmanship. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And what, is, what did Jesus say that the vine dresser does well he prunes he prunes the branches so that they bear even more fruit so he's at work in our lives to bring forth the very fruit that is pleasing to him we are his workmanship and then the last thing here the fourth and last reason why god can take pleasure in our imperfect obedience is because our obedience flows from love and love is the fulfillment of the law a Christian, by definition, is someone who loves God and loves other people. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. This is not a special group of Christians who love God. It's just a description of all Christians. All Christians love God, by definition. 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then loving other people, loving the brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, 
You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So a Christian is someone who loves God and loves other people. Does he love God and love other people perfectly as the Lord Jesus Christ did? No. But the Christian's love is real and genuine love. Again, that piece of gold might have some worthless bits clinging to it, but it's real gold. It's the real thing. It's real love. Genuine. True. In the same way, our attempts at obedience are often mixed with imperfections, but even though, even so, those attempts at obedience flow from a heart of love, a heart of genuine love. And our Father is able to penetrate through those imperfections and see the real love that resides at the center of it. And that love, Paul says, is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, do we really believe that love is the fulfillment of the law? Do we really believe that's what it, God is, is aiming at? It is the sum total of what God requires of His people, love. That love is what He's ultimately aiming for by working in us to will and to do. That love is what brings joy to His heart. And to the degree that our obedience flows from love, as imperfect but real as that love is, God is pleased with that. He delights in that. Another way to look at it is that God delights in His own perfections, and one of those perfections is love. 1 John 4, God is love. And so He also delights when that perfection is manifested in His children to any degree. Real, genuine love manifested in His people. You see, a lot of times we read those verses like in Romans 13 about love being the fulfillment of the law, and we kind of think, well, but no one ever does that. But if you go to Romans 8, Paul says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. He's talking about what Christians do. Christians don't walk after the flesh. They walk after the Spirit and they fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in so doing that. What is the righteous requirement of the law? It's love. That's what Paul goes on to say in Romans 13. So we shouldn't read those. It, it, is, it is a standard in one sense, but it's a standard that the Christian, through the Holy Spirit, is actually able to live out in their lives. We fulfill the law. We really do. To the degree that we're loving as Christ loved. Let me close here with a final thought. And this is really important. Even though God takes pleasure in our imperfect obedience, He's not content with our imperfect obedience. And rather than thinking that this negates everything that I've said up to this point, it really should encourage you. He's not content with our imperfect obedience. Does He take pleasure in His people? Absolutely. Is He content to leave them where they are? Absolutely not. And we should be thankful that that is the case. Otherwise, what hope would we ever have for growing? 
If our growth in Christ-likeness is ultimately dependent upon God, which it is, then the only hope we have of changing is that God is not content to leave us where we are. He says, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will save you from all your uncleanness. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Then and only then will God rest content when we're perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You see, He delights in that B+. He really does. But He's not content to stop there. He's going to work with us. He's going to review the material with us. He's going to study with us, encourage us, until our obedience is perfected, until we get that A. Like a dad teaching his son to walk, our father delights in every wobbly step that we take, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't rest content until we fully walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Jesus said, whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have in abundance. So let me exhort you again to stand firm against the devil's accusations of failure. Though weak and imperfect, your works of obedience really do bring pleasure to God. They're genuinely good works wrought by God with love at the center and made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Well, let's pray. Father, we confess it's so hard to believe these things sometimes, especially when we're bombarded with accusations and uh, we just we pray for help we pray for grace that we would walk by faith that we would believe the things that are true and lord i pray even this morning you'd help us here with this message to separate the chaff from the weed and to cling to those things that are good pray you'd apply it to each of our hearts whatever we need to get from it and bless our time together now in christ's name amen